Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life, featuring the expository story preaching of Dr. John Katzian. He loved to walk out, especially outside the king's gate, because when he walked out, you had to bow down to him. And he would love to see men and women bow down to him. The king, King Xerxes, required people to bow down to him. You know, and I can imagine him standing there in the middle of the king's gate, just coming out, and everybody's like, it's Haman, we must bow down to him. And oh, look, that guy's bowing down there. Oh, look, that guy's bowing down there. Oh, look, that guy's bowing down there. Oh, look at that. That guy is not bowing down to me why is he not bowing down to me what it's it's that mordecai the jew the jew mordecai i hate him i hate him and you know he kept this anger inside he wasn't gonna let it come out because he had a plan He had a plan to get back at Mordecai for not bowing down to him. And not just Mordecai, all of the Jews. See, this was Haman. Haman was second in command to King Xerxes. Now, I want to stop here and just clarify. In the book of Esther, it talks about... King Ahasuerus, it keeps referencing this king. Well, historically, they're using the Jewish name for King Xerxes. So historically, that king was King Xerxes I. And we know historically when these events took place. So instead of saying that very long, complicated name, I just put in King Xerxes. Well, King Xerxes. He couldn't run everything, right? So he had various chiefs and various people working for him. And his second in command was a guy named Haman. H-A-M-A-N. Haman. And this man, Haman, he was powerful. And man, he was rich. He had so much money, he didn't even know what to do with half of it. And again, this guy is powerful. I mean... He could kill Mordecai at the snap of his fingers. And so I wonder if people came up to Mordecai and said, Hey, hey, bow down. Why aren't you bowing down to Haman? Do you know what he can do to you? Do you know the sort of trouble you can get to if you don't bow down to him? Mordecai told them, You know what? I don't care. I will not bow down to him. I will not bow down to him because I am a Jew. Now, it's interesting. You know, the the, the Hebrew Bible doesn't really say, hey, you can't bow down to somebody. 
the Hebrew Bible talks about it, there being, you know, a, a sense of honor, show respect for those in authority where you're at. And, and the Bible is full of examples. The Old Testament's full of examples of Jews bowing down and showing submission to other kings and people in positions of authority. Now, the Old Testament does say you can't worship other gods. So I don't know what Mordecai is thinking here. Now, between chapters 2 to chapters 3 here in the book of Esther, there's probably a three to four year time frame. And so maybe Esther's growing in her position as queen. And so maybe Mordecai thinks, you know, since I'm her uncle, I've got a little more power. I, I, I think I'll be okay here. But see, I think Mordecai, I think his reasons were completely different. I think as much as Haman hated Mordecai, I think Mordecai hated Haman. See, Mordecai, I think it shows there in the passage, hated Haman for what he stood for. Because it says there in the book of Esther that Haman was an Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Well, historically, an Agagite is somebody who's related to King Agag. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, you find the story of King Agag. Mordecai hates Haman because he's an Amalekite and a descendant of King Agag. See, the Amalekites had attacked the Jewish people as they were leaving Egypt. You know, in the Exodus, they were getting out of Egypt. And the Amalekites had attacked them at one of their weakest moments. And so God cursed them and said, because of that sin, the Amalekites were to be destroyed. Now, Moses didn't complete the job and, and Saul definitely did not destroy them. And in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel told him to kill King Agag, but Saul didn't. And so in the story in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel grabs a sword and hacks King Agag to pieces. I mean, literally, doesn't just kill him, just whack, 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 chops him up. Because he is trying to show Saul, hey, you have to obey God. God wanted us to kill this king. You have to follow through. You have to obey God. You have to wipe out the Malachites. They never did totally wipe out the Malachites. It seems like they slowly began to come back and, and, and become a thorn in the side of the Jewish people. And I think Mordecai found out that Haman was a descendant of King Agag and that ultimately Haman was an Amalekite. Well, I think Haman, he hated Mordecai and, and he especially hated the Jews he hated Mordecai because he was a Jew. And he hated Mordecai also because it says in Esther that Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, in the Israeli nation, right, Israel is made up of 12 tribes. And one of the tribes is the tribe of Benjamin. Well, King Saul was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. And King Saul was the one who was supposed to 
kill Haman's forefather, King Agag. And then he found out that Mordecai's of the same tribe as Saul. Because of all that, Haman hates Mordecai. Mordecai hates him back. And so there's this long-standing animosity. Big word for this long-standing feud or anger or hatred between the Jewish people and the Amalekites. And now, 550 years later, from 1 Samuel 15, here Haman and Mordecai, they remembered all this, and they hate each other. Now, maybe it was wrong for Mordecai to not bow. Maybe it was wrong for Mordecai to not forgive Haman of what his people had done to the Jews. Because it says in the story here that Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. He does not like Haman. But with Haman, he doesn't just dislike Mordecai. I think it takes on demonic proportions, Haman's hatred. You know, why do I say that? Because when he finds out who Mordecai was, it basically says there in Esther, he doesn't want to just kill Mordecai. Haman says, I want to kill all of the Jews. Why not just kill Mordecai for not bowing down? Well, why not just kill him? I mean, it makes no logical sense. Why You hate him for not bowing. Why, why do you hate his whole race? I think it goes back, like I said, to that long-standing animosity, but I also think it takes on demonic proportions. Haman wanted to basically commit something that is called genocide, okay? It's a big word, but genocide essentially means wiping out a whole race of people. He wanted to exterminate all the Jews in all of Persia, in all of the provinces. Sadly, history is full of that where kings and rulers and people in power have tried to wipe out and exterminate the Jews. And I think, again, it takes on demonic proportions because the Jews are God's chosen people. They're special to him. I think Satan knows that. Satan knows if I can exterminate the Jews, if I can stop the Messiah can stop Jesus, I can stop this thing called salvation, and here in the person of Haman, <laughs> he has his chance. So Haman, oh, I hate Mordecai. In fact, you know what, I hate all the Jews. So he goes home and he starts to talk to his friends and his wife and he gathers all his counselors around and basically asks, how, how can I kill all of the Jews? And I'm sure they sit around talking and debating, you know, and what can we do? How can we wipe them out? What's the way that we can, we can kill not just Mordecai, we can kill everybody. How do we do this? And they're debating about different ideas and then one of them, hey, Haman, I've got an idea. Let's come up with a law that says that the 
the people of the Persian kingdom, wherever they happen to be, if they live in Egypt, if they live in India, if they live in the Middle East, wherever it happens to be, wherever the Persian people are, how about this, Haman? They can rise up and kill all the Jews in their town, their city, or province. They can just kill them. And then you don't have to do it, right? You don't have to be in every province. They can just rise up and kill whatever Jew they want. Their next door neighbor is a Jew. They can kill him. Their neighbor three doors down, they can kill him. Yes, all right. Haman's like, I like this idea. Yes, this is a good idea. But how can we get them to do it? How can we get them to do it? What would make you want to rise up and kill your Jewish neighbor, your Jewish friend, your your Jewish coworker? What would make him do that? Hmm. So they pace back and forth, and then maybe that same person goes, I got it, Haman, listen. We'll send out a law that you can rise up in any province, any city, any town in Persia, and kill all the Jews in that city, province, town. And if you kill them, you get to keep their stuff. Haman's like, whoa. That is a great idea. If you kill a Jew, you can keep his car. If you kill a Jew, you can keep his Xbox. You can keep his money. You can keep everything. Yes, I like this plan because that would motivate people. Because, hey, especially some of these rich Jewish people, they can keep all their stuff. Yes, I like it. They can keep the land. So Haman's like, all right, so when are we going to do this? It's going to take some time. How about next week? No, no, that wouldn't give us enough time. we got to pick a day. So Haman's like, all right, you know what? We have got to get the blessings of our gods on our side. Because they didn't follow Yahweh. They didn't follow the one true God. They were probably Persian in their approach to the gods, and they probably had a plurality of gods and many gods. And one way of determining the favor of the gods and determining what a god wanted, what we would call draw lots. Okay? Now, there's various ways you can draw lots. Basically, drawing a lot means you're saying, by chance, I'm going to let the gods pick whatever choice because i don't know there's too many choices here they want a specific day when this thing should happen maybe you want to know who you should marry maybe you want to know what job you should go so back then people would draw lots now some people drew lots by taking little sticks and cutting them and and having one long one and then or maybe they're all the same length except for one that was short and you held them in your hand where you could only see the top and they're all level. And you pulled out the stick. And whoever drew the short stick, the lot fell on them. Some cultures would put colored stones in a bag. All of them being black. One of them being white. Or all of them being white and one of them being black. And you would stick your hand in and you would pull out. And whoever pulled out the colored stone that was different from the rest... The lot fell on them. Well, the Persians, they cast lots by doing something called rolling dice. Okay? They had dice back then. 
You know, they had many sided dice and maybe this was just your average eight sided dice or six sided dice or 12 sided dice. Whatever it happens to be, they would roll dice. And the interesting thing is they called these dice Purim, P-U-R-I-M. Purim, or they'd shorten it and just call these dice pure, P-U-R. Again, it was a stone die that was rolled, and based on which side came up, you would know what to do. You know, sometimes have you seen those magic eight balls where you shake it and the certain side comes up and it says, you certainly will not. You shake it again. The answer is yes. You shake it again. We're not certain. Well, it's sort of like that. They would roll this and maybe they had words or phrases on them that would tell them specific things to do. Or maybe they had a number and maybe that number correlated to something else. Well, to get the favor of the gods, to understand what his god wanted, Haman rolled the Purim. He rolled the pure. He rolled these dice. And it says in Esther that he kept on rolling. And he kept on rolling. Now I can imagine he shakes his hand, he rolls it. Okay, I gotta roll it again. And he, he's trying to find a date. When will this horrible genocide take place? What will that date be? And he keeps rolling this dice. And then finally, there's the date. That's the date of this horrible genocide. His gods have decided the date was going to be March 7th, a year from now. <gasps> yes! You know, I can imagine him rubbing his hands together. Yes! A year from now, on March 7th, we're going to send out a law that everybody who isn't a Jew can rise up in whatever city or town or province or state they're in and they can kill all the Jews in that city or town and, and take all their stuff on March 7th, a year from now. Yes! Now, I think it's interesting, because remember I told you, God's not mentioned in this book, but God is everywhere in this book, working behind the scenes, helping his people, because remember, the Jews are God's chosen people. And do you think God had any say over the outcome of this dice? Do you think it was just sheer luck, sheer coincidence that this die, this dice happened to end up on March 7th, a year from now? No. See, it talks about in Psalms, and it talks about in the Old Testament, and it talks about in the book of Deuteronomy how Yahweh is the king of all kings, the god of all gods. He is the ruler over everything. And I think the readers of this book, who are Jewish people, probably in exile, going through maybe some discouraging times, they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem and things aren't going well, and they would have been encouraged. Because God has control, not just over the day-to-day -day events that they see. God has control over the supernatural, over the unseen realm. He controls other gods. They do his bidding. And God Almighty Yahweh picks that day. Haman doesn't give him the credit. Haman has no clue that Yahweh's working. He's celebrating his gods. 
those gods, they're nothing compared to the true, mighty god named Yahweh who controls all things. So Haman, you know, he goes into King Xerxes. And, you know, he, he knew Xerxes wasn't too smart. And, you know, he basically could manipulate and get Xerxes to do what he wants. And so in walks Haman and he says, hey, King X. Probably on that sort of terms where, you know, Haman could just give him a nickname. Hey, King X, listen to me. I have got some good news and some bad news for you. What do you want to hear first? So Xerxes, you know, goes, all right, give me the bad news. So Haman says, listen, here's the bad news, King. There is this race of people that are scattered throughout all your provinces. They're not Persians. They are not to be trusted. Did you know this race of people? They don't worship our gods. They, they worship one God. And not only that, they can't be trusted. And they're always constantly trying to subvert you. They're always trying to, to not obey your laws. These people are bad and they're scattered throughout your whole territory, your whole kingdom, king. King Xerxes like, whoa, man. That is bad. I, if, they're, if they're constantly working against me, and they're and they're constant, and they're, and they're people that can't be trusted. This isn't good, you know, huh? What should we do? I mean, it says there in Esther chapter three verse eight that Haman says these are people scattered abroad throughout all your provinces, and their laws are different. They don't keep the king's law. And it, he says it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. This is bad news, King X. What are you going to do? Again, I think King Xerxes is dumb enough that he's like, whoa, man, this is something I should worry about, even though he's the mightiest king in the world, has got an army, could just crush anybody he wants. And how come these people haven't showed up before? I don't know, but king xerxes doesn't catch on he's like you're right what are we gonna do and so then here comes haman hey king x here is the good news we are gonna pick a day in fact i've picked a day it's gonna be march 7th write that down march 7th says xerxes okay hey that's coming up really fast no 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 it's march 7th a year from now Oh, okay. March 7th, a year from now. Okay, I got that. I got that. Here's what's going to happen, King. All the people loyal to Persia, all the Persian people who worship our gods and obey our laws, wherever they happen to live, whether it's in Egypt, whether it's in India, whether it's up there in those little parts that are later going to be called Russia, whether it's parts in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, wherever these people happen to live. On March 7th, a year from now, they're going to rise up with weapons and, and they're going to kill all the Jews in their region. Then it even adds this. They're going to kill all the men and they're going to even kill the women and the children. Like I said, this is demonic. Haman has no reason to want to commit this sort of genocide to wipe everybody out. But he hates them. And I think through Haman, Satan has an opportunity 
to wipe out these people that he hates. So guess what? March 7th, a year from now, King, anybody can rise up who's Persian and they'll wipe out and kill all the men, women, and Jewish children. Kill them all. And guess what? They'll be able to keep their stuff, their jewelry, their houses, their lands. Plus, listen, King, if you send out this edict that on March 7th, a year from now, you can rise up and kill all the Jewish people in your region and keep all their stuff. If you send out this law, King, I will give you 10,000 talents of silver. <gasps> King Xerxes is like, whoa, say that again, Haman. If you do this, I'm willing to give you and put in the king's treasury 10,000 talents of silver. Whoa, King Xerxes is like, I like silver. And that was a lot of silver. Remember I told you Haman was a rich man? Well, that came to basically 75 pounds of silver. That's essentially a, a third of a year's wages. I mean, that is an immense amount of money. It was a ridiculous amount of money that Haman could just drop like that, and Haman's giving it to the king, and he's getting nothing in return except the death of millions of people. So the king says, I like this idea. I get rich. We wipe out all these bad people who don't obey me or follow my laws. And so he takes his signet ring off his hand and gives it to Haman. And he says, hey, Haman, I want you to take this command and I want you to make it into law. So Haman holds the signet ring in his hand, and he's like, oh, I'm so excited. I can imagine he puts it down on the table, and then he starts to write out this law that a year from now, on March 7th, the people of Persia were to kill and slaughter all of the Jewish people around them, and he signs it, and King Xerxes signs it, and then they pour a little bit of wax on this law, and Haman takes his signet ring, and he presses it into that wax. And it's done. It is now an official law of the Medes and the Persians. And it can never be broken. Now remember that. Once this became law, it could never be broken. And Haman's like, yes! We're going to kill Mordecai and we're going to kill all the Jews. So Haman and Xerxes, it says, they sit down and they start to drink. Because remember, I told you, right? Xerxes, he likes to drink a lot of alcohol. And he likes to party and he likes to get drunk. And they were happy, yes! But it also says in Esther... That outside the palace, it was chaos. The capital of Susa was, it says, in an uproar. People are running around. What, what, what am I supposed to do? The Jews didn't know what to do. And then their friends who aren't Jews are flabbergasted. See, this law 
eventually, like that Pony Express thing I told you about earlier, somebody hopped on a horse, rode to a city, read the law, March 7th. This genocide will take place. You get to keep all their stuff. Read out this horrible, disgusting law. And it's read in town square after town square. And it was read right away in the capital of Susa. And the Jewish people are in an uproar. A year from now, I'm going to be killed. And again, the other non-Jews are like, I can kill my neighbor and take his stuff. I don't want to do that. I love my neighbor, but I do like his stuff. And that's in an uproar. And people are arguing and fighting and scared and afraid. And Mordecai, when he gets his copy of the law, this new law, and he begins to read it. It says in chapter 3 that Mordecai goes into mourning and he tore his clothes. Because when you mourn, what you would do is you would tear your clothes. You would wear this stuff called sackcloth, which is really itchy, made out of itchy material. So you were constantly scratching and itchy. It was horrible to wear. And then you would go to your friend's barbecue pit and you'd take out ashes and put it on your head. You'd go to some campfire and find that dark, you know, nasty ashes, and you'd put it on your head. You'd put it on your shoulder. You would cover yourself in sackcloth and ashes, and he began to mourn, and he went up to the king's gate and basically wailed, ah, right there for all to see. Because Mordecai wanted somebody in the palace to know what was going down. And that somebody in the palace, he wanted to know about this bad news because maybe she missed it, was Esther. And when Esther, it says, found out that Mordecai was screaming and wailing and basically mourning, she sent her servant Hattach to inquire of Mordecai what was wrong. Esther says, hey, give Mordecai these clothes so he doesn't have to just stay at the king's gate. He'll stop mourning. He can come in. We can talk about it. But here comes attached with the clothes and Mordecai throws them away and he refuses to wear them. Instead, I can imagine he grabs attached and says, listen, you tell Esther that she needs to go into the king and plead for her people Give her the copy of this law so she can read it herself and, and, and so she'll understand what, what's going to happen to her people. So Attach runs back and gives the law to Esther. And there she reads about how on March 7th, a year from now, the Jewish people are going to be wiped out. And then Attach tells her, hey, Mordecai? Queen, he wants you to go into the king and plead for your people. You've got to plead for your people. That's what Mordecai wants. And Esther looks at the law and she thinks, but I can't. So she scribbles something down and hands it back to Hattach. And Hattach runs back to Mordecai, who's still in mourning. And, and he unfolds it and he reads this note from Esther. The note essentially says, I have not seen the king for 30 days, over a month. Then she adds, maybe I've lost favor in his sight. Maybe the king doesn't love me anymore. Maybe the king wants nothing to do with me. And then she adds, 
Mordecai, if I go into the presence of the king and he does not approve of me, I could be killed, Mordecai. If he's mad at me for whatever reason, King Xerxes could kill me on the spot if I go in there. And Mordecai reads this. He grabs a pen from somebody and he writes back a note and hands it to Hattach, who then runs it back to Esther. And then Esther reads. And Mordecai says this to Esther. These are famous words, you know. These are famous words that have been passed down from generation to generation. And it says there in Esther chapter 4, verse 13, that Mordecai tells Esther this. Don't think yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Then here's the big phrase. And who knows whether you have not come to the throne for such a time as this. Esther steps back. She reads that. She thinks maybe he's right. If I go into the king, I could be killed, but maybe maybe God put me in this position as queen for such a time as this, for this very reason to protect my people. Maybe God put me here. Well, what's Esther going to do? Will she go into the king and risk life and death? Or will she stay safe and just hope God protects his people some other way? What would you do? Well, if you come back next week, we'll find out what Esther chooses to do. But I just want to encourage you, whatever age or stage you happen to be at, I want you to walk away from this story thinking about this. God has put you where you're at for such a time as this. God has put you in an area of influence to use it for his glory. You bump into people that only you can bump into. You talk to people that only you can talk to. And how do you know that God hasn't put you in a particular job, a particular situation, have an influence two years, five years, maybe now, an influence down the road, whatever it happens to be for such a time as this? Or how about this? Maybe God has put you in that annoying, troublesome church for such a time as this because God wants you to move and have an impact in that area of influence. Or how about this? Maybe God has put you in that family. Oh, you don't know my kids. You don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. You don't know what I have to deal with. All I can say is, how do you know God hasn't put you there for such a time as this? I pray you think about that. Think about how God can use me where I'm at for his glory 
maybe he's put me here for such a time as this. Thank you for listening to Bald Head Bible Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can comment on our Facebook page or email us at baldheadbible at gmail.com. If you would like to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash baldheadbible. Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life. New episodes added every week.